This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. All right, guys, welcome to Tax Tuesday. We're bringing tax knowledge to the masses. My name is Toby Mathis, and I'm joined by Elliot Thomas. And Elliot's going to sit in for Jeff today because Jeff, well, he's hanging out doing other things. So hopefully, uh, the uh, wonderful tax season just creamed our tax staff. We still got a bunch on. I can already see a bunch of names popping in that are there to help. I saw Ian pop up earlier. Let me see if I can actually make my cursor work. There it is. Let's see. I know we got Lansy. We got Dana. We do have Patty, Ander, and Matthew to help support you guys. We got Cindy, Dutch. Oh, wow. And Pio. So we got a really good team on to help you guys. And Tricia uh, and Christos, Jiminy Christmas. You guys got a venerable pack out here of tax knowledge to help you guys out. So by all means, ask tax questions in the Q&A. If you have comments, by all means, go into chat. So use Q&A for your questions. Use chat for your comments. I already see somebody saying hello from New Hampshire. Hey, Ken, if, if you can go into that chat and let me know where you're sitting <laughs> where you're there we go we got we got anacortes so what city and state if you can uh monteca roseville anchorage alaska on the couch odessa florida oh, now they're flying about too fast there's dc there's uh hawaii honolulu hawaii claremont uh atlanta georgia st augustine chicago seattle ashland oregon wiley texas bailey colorado there's some more Seattle, Washington, Fresno, Baltimore, Las Vegas, Nevada. All right, we got at least one hometown. Uh, Albuquerque, Los Angeles, SoCal, Tullahoma, Tullahoma, Tennessee. Yeah, very cool. Well, we're sitting in Las Vegas, Nevada. Elliot, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I had it a lot easier than Jeff and company with the tax prep, but uh, busy nonetheless. But uh Glad they're getting a break. It's crazy. And I know that uh, sometimes it's frustrating during tax season because everybody's trying to walk through the same door at the same time. And you always want to prepare for it. And, no, you know, it's no good plan overcomes contact with reality. I'll put it that way. Um, and the IRS is just really, really difficult to communicate with right now. So if there's any questions that go on, instead of being a five, 10 minute phone call, it ends up being a two hour ordeal. Really frustrating really tough. There's somebody in Portland, Oregon, home of the zombie apocalypse. Uh, we got people, there's Brooklyn, Naples, and Incline Village. We got people from all over the country. So that's fantastic. Thanks for joining us. We do try to make this kind of enjoyable, kind of fast and fun and uh, uh, answer your tax questions. Speaking of tax questions, if you have them during the two weeks when in between these episodes, by all means, go ahead and send them via Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. We do take a look at them, and I do pull questions out of that heap because it is a heap. It's several hundred questions a week that come in. I can already see tons of questions going to the Q&A, uh, but we have people uh, that have questions throughout the week, and you can just go ahead and email them those in. We may grab your question, that's all. But we love the questions. It keeps us going, and it's so much fun. And there we go. Patty's already communicating with folks from Pullman, Washington, because her daughter went to WSU, the yep. Cougs. Yep. All right, here we go. These are the questions we're going to go over today, and uh, we will answer all these in turn, so do not worry. We already got, got go Cougs going on in the background. 
You guys are doing pretty good this year, right? If I'm not mistaken. I haven't, I haven't paid a lot of attention to college football this year, but uh, we'll see how they're doing. I'll keep my eye rolled. All right. For a 1031, does acquiring the beneficial interest of a land trust holding title to real estate qualify as real as replacement property? Same question, but an installment sale for the beneficial interest of a land trust. Interesting questions. We'll answer that. How can the IRS prove we as owners used our short-term rental for more than 14 days or 10% of rental rented days? How can they prove it? Dang it. We'll answer that. Uh, my wife is the property manager of our small real estate portfolio. What is the best way to document the hours she spends on our business? As we are claiming she a probably she is a full-time real estate professional to unlock the, the potential extra tax benefits. We'll go over that too. We hire professionals for plumbing, AC repair, and she handles items like semi-annual home inspections, painting, AC filter deliveries, all advertising, bookkeeping, et cetera. Thank you. So yeah, we'll get into that. We'll break down kind of the rules. And I, when I say we, it means Elliot. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that. Um, I have a Fidelity brokerage taxable mutual fund account. It is not a retirement account. The taxable account has two mutual funds inside. One is a diversified growth and the other is more balanced 60-40, probably bonds. I started investing in these accounts in 1992 and directed all dividends and capital gains to be reinvested in the same fund. So a drip. On a positive note, the account has grown dramatically but the bad news is that both funds have high costs associated with them, i.e. actively traded and high turnover, which dries up costs. I would like to somehow move the money to a more tax-efficient index stock, such as XLY, the Dividend Kings, Dow Diamonds, QQQ, S&P 500, VOO, etc. Will I be able to do so with no tax or minimal tax implications? I picked that one because it was really long. <laughs> no, it's a good question. So we're gonna we're gonna get it done. <laughs> After using accelerated depreciation on a new Airbnb this year, can I avoid future recapture in the case of a sale through a 1031 exchange? Can I exclude some nights when I stayed overnight on the Airbnb property for the purpose of improvement? Say installation of the gutter guards by a company the next day I had to be there to receive the furniture delivered, which I also had to unpack, move, and put in the right places. Uh, good questions, and we'll get into that. Can I take a primary home loan on a property that has been bought with 1031 exchange funds and live in the property myself? Ooh, very good question. Yep. How does the new corporate transparency law affect our LLC structures? Are you confident that Anderson can figure out a workaround to maintain anonymity? What are the good and bad takeaways from this new law? We'll give you guys kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly on that. They said the good and the bad, so I just throw right. the ugly. <laughs> Our family has Christian healthcare medical bill sharing. I'm always told this is not insurance. How does the, IR, the IRS view this? Can it be deducted for Schedule A? Can it be used as an insurance deduction? So we'll get into that. My husband and I acquired a short-term rental this year and hoping to close on a multi-family property for long-term rental by the end of the year. I am on track with rep status for this real estate professional status for 2022. Uh, we have come across several potential listings, however, requiring a gut down and major rehab. The likelihood of having this reno done and rented is slim by the end of the year. My question is if having the property 
or the having the listing up and ready for rental is considered as in service. So my question is, is having the listing up ready for rental is considered in service. So I'll, I'll break that one down. That's a little bit confusing to me, but we'll dive into it. All righty. Hey, if you guys like getting your questions answered and don't know the right question to ask, you can go to our YouTube channel. One of the cool things there is we're always throwing out new content every week, about two a week, put out videos, podcasts, et cetera, on a variety of different topics, everything from tax to financial to asset protection to legacy planning to 501c3. So you know, we just go the gamut. Uh, feel free to join up and sign up and it is free, just like Tax Tuesday is always free, but it does help us to have you subscribe and to interact and to comment and things like that because Google likes us better. I don't know why it matters whether Google likes us. I suppose it helps to have them like us. I don't know. Wouldn't hurt. Doesn't hurt, <laughs> I guess. All right, so let's dive into these. For a 1031 exchange, does acquiring the beneficial interest of a land trust holding title to real estate qualify as replacement property? Same question, but an installment sale for the beneficial of the land trust. What do you say? Well, at first, when I, I saw this question, I wasn't exactly certain how we were getting that beneficial interest. And I suspect maybe uh, there isn't a sale involved. And that's the real key behind the 1031 is it has to be a, a sale of land and, and picking up a replacement that you purchased. So if this beneficial interest was in some manner, maybe in, you know, an inheritance beneficial interest or, you know, from the land trust, or you put it in there, that would not qualify. But if you're saying, hey, I've done the 1031, gotten the replacement, and I put it in a land trust, and now I'm getting the beneficial interest, I believe that would count because it's all disregarded if that was what we're trying to get through with this question. All right, let's, let's, let's break this down. Yeah. I think they're saying, I'm selling a property under 1031, and if I buy a beneficial interest in a land trust, mm -hmm. does that count as the purchase of a property under a 1031 exchange? No. Right. And I, it's actually specifically listed as, as, being, as, as, as excluded from the same way stock is excluded is the same as a beneficial interest in a trust is excluded. If you are the grantor of a trust, then you might be able to get away with it. Correct. So mm -hmm. if I am a going from trust to trust, you could probably do it. I would say my personal preference, and I think that of most uh, qualified intermediaries would be that you go name to name, it has to be the same name or you're going to get scrutinized. So if you are going from Elliot Thomas to buy a beneficial interest in a trust, that would that would not work. But if it went Elliot Thomas to Elliot Thomas as trustee, that would probably be looked at. And then what they would really care about is whether you're the grantor. So the IRS considers the grantor the owner of the property. So the person that creates the trust. Yep. On a revocable trust. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And on a irrevocable trust, no, yeah, no, that's that, work. then yeah, it's, it's never going to work. You can do the Delaware Statutory Trust. They look at that kind of in a different vein. Those ones, they've actually had a, I think it was a, it was either a revenue ruling or a private letter ruling where they said that it's the underlying property that you're acquiring when you buy the DST. So you could go from your name to your name buying the DST and they'll consider you buying the underlying property. But that's, that's a completely different issue. So uh, when you look at the uh, 26 USC 1031, and I want to say A2E, I believe are the list of all the exceptions, you'll see that the acquisition of a beneficial interest in a trust is one of the exceptions to being able to qualify for a 1031 exchange. 
So I'll make it really easy. And then the question of an installment sale, you always have to put the equity, you know, so you can get financing on something else. I don't want to step on you. Were you going to answer that one? No, no, no. no. If I sell a property and then buy another property, if it has debt on it, when I sell it, I can get the same amount of debt on the other. Otherwise, I can go in all cash. What I can't do is go no debt to debt. What you would do there is, uh, and it's actually going to be an answer coming up in, in, in a little while, is you would close and then not incidental. Like you, it can't be something that was necessary with this property, then you would refi it. We'll dive into that one a little deeper as, uh, a little bit later on. Anything else you want to throw in there on those 1031 exchanges? No, just always remember the same title rule. That's the probably where people get in the most difficulty on it. Mm-hmm. Here's the final one. How about the ex- executor of an estate and they're buying out the heirs? Can you do a 1031 exchange? You have a step up in basis when you're the executor of an estate. So chances yeah. are there is going to be no game. But let's just say that there was. No, you're because you're, you're selling a property and you're buying a replacement property. So 1031 is a fancy way of saying I'm taking real estate and I'm buying equal or greater value of real estate. And it doesn't matter what type of real estate, how many pieces I sell one property, I could buy 10. I'm just in what, what happens is the basis of the first property gets spread out amongst the 10 that you're buying. So it's it's basically a deferral technique. So you don't have to pay tax on your gain or your recapture right away. We kick it down the kick it down the, the path a ways. And all you have to do to never pay tax is die. And then your basis steps up and yeah. your heirs can sell it. So uh, do it. Oh, somebody says, I am selling a commercial building into the estate's property. I'm an heir and also an executor. So if you're selling and you're buying replacement property, then yes. And yeah, what would happen is the new property that you purchased from the estate, it's kind of weird if you're a beneficiary, you'd already have a step up in basis. So I, I'm not sure whether you'd be disqualified here. I know that there's rules when you're selling. So, so yeah, Kevin is sending this in via the chat. You guys can't see it. But what I imagine is Kevin is saying, I'm going to sell a piece of property. I want to buy the property for my other heirs. I don't think that's pro- uh, prohibited. So you're buying out the remainder of their interest. The only question is whether you're buying as a tenant in common, which I assume you probably would be to make this valid. And I think you just have a longer holding period. I think it's like two years before you sell and you'd, you'd be okay. But I, again, I'm buying in a family LP that it has to be LP. So yeah, I, I think that if you're buying in the family LP, you're going to have an issue. It needs to be the name to name and it has to be the real estate itself. So you can't buy out the LP. You'd actually have to buy the underlying asset. It would be a specific interest, probably a tenant in common in that property. But go ahead and throw that also in the Q&A. Our guys might grab a hold of that one. It's kind of fun. There's a few other comments in the Q&A, but I'll just sneak on. Otherwise, we'll be answering that question all day long. All right. How can the IRS prove we as owners used our short-term rental for more than 14 days or 10% of rental days? Yeah. I uh, I mean, what do you oh, say? Oh, come on. Oh, come on. <laughs> the reality is they probably can't unless they had, you know, they somehow got... The ability to go out there and research and find out, you know, brought it into court and documents were produced, et cetera. Uh, the reality is they probably can't. But, you know, we kind of run an honor system in our tax code. So it's facts and circumstances the same way. How can the IRS prove that I got paid for all of the widgets I sold, you know, or, you know, or I'm selling 
burritos at a stadium. You know, I, how can how, how do they know how much cash? Well, they, they they don't. And but if you don't report it, it's called tax evasion, and you go to jail. Like somebody says, yeah. looking good. Yeah, she's on my team. She's oh, I, I pay them to do that. Ah, that's good. Somebody <laughs> says uh, it's looking good. I, I think you look good. Uh, like a station wagon. Anyway, uh, so yeah, it was. It, so the IRS doesn't have to prove it. You have to report it, and then if you can't support your position that you rented it for enough days, they're going to ask you about the days that it wasn't rented, and. They might do fact finding. They may want you to say, hey, you never stayed at it. In which case, if they catch you, then the ramifications are the ramifications are pretty severe. So yeah, they, they can't really, they don't have to prove. You have the you have kind of a burden when you create your tax return of a position. And then they might say, Hey, can you provide support for your position? That's about it. They don't really have to prove much of anything. But I would suggest that you be very honest. And uh, so if you're using the short-term rental, they might look at your bank statements. They might get testimony from somebody. Like, it, it might be bad if you got caught in a lie. Upset, upset nice neighbor, thing. you know, was on the whistleblower, whatever it is. It's always a ex-spouse, ex-lover, <laughs> ex-business partner. Somebody always comes up and says, did you know? <laughs> Elliot's been staying there for 30 days every year and he lies on his tax return. That's that's why they have the whistleblower program in the IRS. That actually happened to one of uh, my professor in law school for tax. One of his students was at a bar and a guy was spouting off about how he, he got away with some things on his tax return. Uh-huh. And, well, this this student had left our and graduated and, and gone to work for the IRS. So there was an IRS attorney right there and some guys blabbing off in a bar about so he, he gave him an audit. Yeah. He went after him. Yeah. He said, hey, that's what you get it. Uh, <laughs> and that was that. Somebody says, if the IRS suspects use over 14 days, they can track your receipts and cell phone records during your stays. Yep. They can go in there and they can get discovery. They'll and they they'll get it. You know, they'll 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 absolutely if they put their ears back and come after you. But best best thing is to avoid the IRS. Let's just let's just be honest and do everything we can to not cause their ire. Because I tell you that there's, you never win. Even when you win, you lose. So you just try to just avoid it. Try to stay off their radar. Do things that uh, don't cause scrutiny. And by the way, when 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 we do our returns here, we do over ten thousand a year, and it's less than you know dozen audits every year. It's not that many. We try to make sure that we're keeping our clients from the things that causes you. The consternation and, and and inquiry. So that's why we don't like sole proprietorships and home office deductions. Uh, we try to keep that form from being filed or that form SE. If you might, it's kind of putting a, a little beacon on yourself or filing as a trader. That's all. You know, if if, if there's things that will cause the inquiry, those, those are a few of them. All right, let's talk about this. One. This is a good one. My my wife is the property manager for our small real estate portfolio. What is the best way to document the hours she spends on our business as we are claiming she is a full-time real estate professional to unlock the potential extra tax benefits, i.e. real estate professional is a fancy way of saying your passive rental losses could be considered ordinary active loss and offset your W-2 income. We hire professionals for plumbing, AC repair, et cetera. She handles items like semi-annual home inspections, painting, AC 
filter deliveries, all advertising, bookkeeping, et cetera. So what's the best way to document what she's doing? Yeah, I would all those things that you list out, talking to a plumber, uh, AC repair uh, person, et cetera, put it on an Excel spreadsheet, put the date, what the activity was, the amount of time you spent. If it's, I'm assuming this is a local property, kind of in your town area, put down the time you drove there, the time it took to, to drive back, the time on the phone calling, et cetera. Any of that, just document it in, in like, again, like an Excel spreadsheet. And you may even want to check, you know, kind of check the time that those individuals are spending on the house as well. That gives you a full documentation that the IRS can use then, you know, or not use, but see what actually went on. You will have to make sure you're hitting the overall tests for real estate professional status. I don't know if we want to go into depth on those, but. Well, I, I think it is necessary. So, you know, I, I use phone. You know, and you're like, hey, I, I can easily put something on my calendar, spent this much time, and then take it, put it in a spreadsheet. There are some programs that you can use apps that are time tracking apps. If you want to do that, you can do that too. I would suggest that you use Mile IQ if, if you're tracking mileage, for example. It'll GPS you. It'll also tell you the times and everything along those lines. If you want to track everything, that's another way. Sometimes it's easy. You pull up to a building. You're there, you're doing your supervision, you're working on the building and you leave, that little timestamp is actually good. So if you say, hey, I spent five hours there and the IRS ever wants to, wants you to substantiate it, even, you know, hey, can you give me any details? You already have it. Hey, see, this is the time I pulled up. This is the time I left. It was five hours exactly, that type of thing. It, it certainly helps and it keeps you out of harm's way. Maybe take photos too, if there's repairs being done. Yeah, but but the, the real deal is, when you say real estate professional, there's two tests for real estate professional status, and then there's one test to apply it to your small real estate portfolio. So number one is the first two-part test. It's under 469C7. It's uh, it's this provision that was enacted in 19, uh, what is it, 86, that basically high-income people were buying real estate to offset their high income. And Congress shut the door on that by creating the passive activity loss rules, which is section 469. And uh, basically, people were complaining, saying, hey, I know you shut it down to stop the, the doctors and the lawyers and stuff from, from using it as a tax shelter, but I work in real estate. This is what I do. I, I deserve this. They get to write off their equipment. Why can I write off my property? And they carved out, I think it was probably 92 or 93, they carved off this provision called real estate professional. If you spend more than half of your time and either spouse can qualify, so either spouse, so either spouse can qualify by doing 750 hours in real estate trades or businesses. It doesn't have to be yours. It could be any real estate trade or business. So development, construction, the sale, management, brokerage, et cetera even if it's other people's, 750 hours and more than 50% of your personal time. So more than any other job you do is basically the easiest way to remember that. One spouse. So I could be spouse working full-time as lawyer. My spouse could be working 750 hours in real estate and qualify as a real estate professional. The second step is where I think this comes in. Second step is I materially participate on my real estate activities. And you have to aggregate them. What I mean by that is you treat all of your rental activities as one activity. Otherwise, you have to materially participate in each separate activity. The courts actually wrongfully interpreted that to mean 750 hours Mm -hmm. on each property. So you have to aggregate your properties together. And then you have this thing called material participation. 
This is why it's relevant. There's seven rules under material participation. There's really only three that we pay attention to that are applicable. Number one, I provided substantially all of the work and labor done on those properties. And we already hear there's AC filter, there's painting, there's plumbing, there's AC repair. So there's other people doing stuff. So we nix that one. Number two, I do 100 hours and more than anybody else. This one could apply. So your wife would have to make sure she's spending at least 100 hours on your real estate portfolio as a whole, and nobody else is spending more time than her. So that's where you have to actually get how much time do these people spend. I doubt you're going to need that type of stuff for plumbing or AC repair. But if you have a property manager, my guess is that whoever it is managing those properties, you might have to get their their time. Like how much time are you spending on my properties? And they might say, you know, four hours uh, a month, which case you'll be way ahead of them. You just have to do a hundred hours and more than anybody else. So you would track your time for that. So there's two types of time you're tracking. Real estate professional time, which could be property management on your properties. Otherwise it could be doing construction. Otherwise it could be doing development for other people in your side job, whatever it might be. Maybe you're a real estate agent and you're helping other people buy properties. And then you have to track your time on the material participation on your properties. I don't know, do you guys track those separately on a spreadsheet or do you just have them pick which which ones it hits? Yeah, I, I would track it by property. And again, well, yeah, break it out by property and what the event was, the time. So the more detail you can provide without... You know, we don't, we don't want you killing yourself on trying to put this document together, but the better you do, the less argument you're going to get from the IRS because they don't want to take on good documentation. Yeah. And what I would do is I would just document your time, aggregating and adding it all up. If you know that you're above 750 hours, I wouldn't do it. I would just be like, Hey, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to go through all those extra steps. I can, if, if asked, which is what's quite common, people go back and look. And then I'll add it all up. Just make sure you're doing so with an accountant because we've had, there's actually a really good case. There was a gal that she gave all her time, but she didn't do the travel time. And she added up to about 650 hours without her travel time. So close. And, but then she, on, on appeal, she added more time. And she said, I screwed up. I didn't add all my time. And they allowed her to do that. So, and they, they found it credible, but she, she, at, you know, she got herself a problem because she didn't have an account that knew what they were doing to say, I'm not going to turn in your time if it doesn't meet 750 hours. Unless I recall, it was even the court harassed her to go back and get that time in there. Yeah, they they wanted they, what's they were trying to help her out, you know, yeah. and the, that shows that the courts, you know, if you're a credible uh, taxpayer, they want to work for you. You know, the, they don't like to see the, the big IRS coming down on the little guy. Which is weird. I could tell you right now, the IRS, that is not their position. Some of the quotes that have come out of the very few audits, but I, I talked to other accountants, you remember old Ronnie, and he, he shares with me in real time some of the some of the crud that's coming out of these new agents. They think they're going to get all these new agents. I'm sorry. There's just, yeah, it's not happening. And the people they're getting are just jerks to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah. No offense. I love most of the folks. I know a lot of the attorneys and things like that work for the IRS. They're great. But holy kashmoli, some of these people that are in, in that are being hired as agents, they don't. They don't know basics, the basics of depreciation, and they're being put out there to audit people. It's uh, silly. Um, anyway, I get frustrated with it because it wastes accountants' yeah. time. You're spending three hours explaining basic depreciation. Yeah. Somebody says, 
Uh, that's why Scott Estill said goodbye to them a long time ago. Yep, Scott yeah. Estill was a great <laughs> tax attorney with the IRS. He and I have handled many cases together. He's a really good guy. Uh, but boy, yeah. Uh, I in here, guys, it's going to get worse. They're going to bring in more agents. They're going to put pressure on them to to do more audits, thinking that it's going to generate greater returns. But they say really ridiculous things like, "We don't care what the law says. My job is to represent the interests of the government." That is not legal. That is absolutely against the law. But they do it because, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to basically take it to internal appeals. They're going to fix it later. But you have to deal with the nonsense of these folks in the beginning. Now, the IRS, since 1997, they passed the the kinder, gentler IRS laws. And they're, 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 they actually can't take positions that are illegal just to harass you or try to get extra money out of you. They're supposed to do it. They did in the case we were talking about where the gal, she didn't substantiate, but they knew she actually met the test. And they said, hey take another whack at it. You, you missed it here, but it's not because you didn't put in the time. We need an accurate accounting of your time. Uh, and they actually did find her very, very credible. And they went out of their way to make sure that that she did get the relief she was that she was seeking, realizing that the accountant messed it up. All right. More fun stuff. Talking about insanity. Let's talk about mutual funds. If you've ever listened to us, you know, we're not huge <laughs> fans. And here's why. I have a Fidelity brokerage taxable mutual fund account. It is not a retirement account. The taxable account has two mutual funds inside. One is diversified growth and the other is a more balanced 60-40. I started investing in these accounts in 1992. Way to go, by the way. You got way out ahead of it and directed all dividends and capital gains to be reinvested in the same fund. On a positive note, the account has grown dramatically, but the bad news is that both funds have high costs associated with them. Actually, yeah, it's mutual funds are bad. It's usually, I think on average it's between 4.8 and 5.8. Actively traded in high turnover, which drives up costs. Yep, they call it cash drag, uh, tax drag. Uh, you, have to, you have to maintain liquidity, all sorts of bad stuff. I would like to somehow move the money to a more tax-efficient index stock, such as XLY, Dividend Kings, Dow Diamonds, QQQ, S&P 500, VOO, et cetera. Will I be able to do it with no tax or minimal tax implications? What do you think? I wouldn't know how. I wouldn't think so. I think if you're going to, you'd have to sell and that is a taxable event. And now you're going to have to move it over. We might be able to do things to mitigate that around it, you know, selling some, some lost positions or something like that to offset that gain. But I, I don't know personally how you would be able to get that transferred over. Yeah. So, so mutual funds are taxed in a multiple multitude of ways. Number one, as a holder of a mutual fund, you are paying tax on all of those sales. So when you see, hey, I have high costs because I'm there's high turnover, they're actively trading the account. You pay that as the mutual fund holder. You can actually buy into a tax liability in a mutual fund. It's weird. And somebody says the key word is taxable account. Cor- correct. It is not a IRA. It is not a Roth. It is not a 401k. It is not an exempt account, but it's in their personal account. It's going to be taxable to them. So they've been paying tax all along and on those funds that are being reinvested. The same way is that if you got a, if Elliot here got a, a dividend from Altria and they paid him $300 a dividend, he said, go ahead and reinvest it. He pays tax on the dividends at long-term capital gains rates and he reinvested the amount. So in a mutual fund, you're paying that as you go, as they actively trade it. That's why it's it can be kind of surprising that you get these tax forms every year and you're like, I didn't sell anything. And they're like, but we did inside <laughs> your account. 
right? So you're paying tax on that. You're paying tax on interest if there's bonds and things like that. And so you're paying that as you go, you reinvest it. You have a basis in those shares. If you sell that mutual fund, you owe tax on the capital gain. So uh, is there a way to avoid the tax on the capital gain? It's really hard. Like you could have, you could sell other assets that have capital losses and you in, in harvest some losses. Like maybe you have crypto, maybe you have something that's gone down in value and you say, this is a good time to sell it. And even on crypto, you could sell it and buy it back and harvest that loss to offset your gain. You could still do a qualified opportunity zone, which means that you sell it and then you buy uh, something that's in a qualified opportunity zone. You put together the qualified opportunity zone fund and buy something and you can defer it until 2026 that way. I don't know if I would recommend that. The other thing you could do is you could actually donate it and take the entire deduction for the uh, entire donation. And if you control the charity in which you donate it, maybe it's in a private foundation or a charity, you get a nice deduction on your side and you still control those funds on the other. And then you could reinvest it in there. So there's a there's a few options that you could use, but there's nothing that allows you just to sell it and buy something as a replacement and avoid the tax. There's no 1031 exchange for stocks, unfortunately. Is there anything I'm missing? No, I think that's, yeah, that's, you know, just hitting those, the opportunity zone, which, yeah, I'm, I think that's of questionable use, but it would, and it would only defer. And I think it causes more problems down the line. But um, if, you, if you could harvest any losses, I think that's your, your best bet here. There, there is one other thing. You just keep it and you say, man, it, it sucks. Oh, that's true. But, uh, and then borrow against it and see if you're, if, if it's fidelity, they may, I'm not hundred like usually it's a stock account that they that they'll loan on. I know that for sure. You can do a security back line of credit. But if you own this for long enough, they may say, hey, we'll we'll let you borrow against it and then reinvest those funds. I don't think I'd be doing that in the S P. It might be something that's maybe real estate or something, something that's a little more backed. But if I could borrow the money and I have a dividend that's being paid out on something that again, I keep using Altria just because they're like eight percent dividend right now. Uh but Maybe I'm borrowing the money at, I don't have to pay any tax. I borrow it at 4%. I'm getting a decent sized dividend that's covering more than that cost. Maybe I do that and that I don't have a taxable event, but it really depends on your risk tolerance and your asset. Like if you have a lot of money, then maybe you do that to avoid the tax. Uh, how much is the maximum I can donate to a nonprofit? It's, it's 60% of your adjusted gross income. If it is cash, it's 30% if it's appreciated assets. If it's a, private foundation where it's not doing anything, but you're just hold, using it as a, a holding vehicle to donate to other charities, then it's 20%, I believe. Anyway, so I, you, you could actually do a combination of that. I could actually say, hey, I'm going to sell some, but I'm going to donate some and then sell some. And the reason I do that is I'm going to take the donation and that, you know, that charitable uh, in my income tax deduction to offset the gain on the rest of it. And it's long-term capital gains. So it's going to be taxed at zero, 15 or 20%. So if you, I should have answered right at the beginning that if you make less than $80,000 a year and you're married, you're probably paying zero anyway, you know? So let's take a look at that. Maybe, maybe you recognize gain over a, a couple of tax years and it's, you're okay paying 15%. You just don't want to pay higher. Yeah. So if you're making less than half a million dollars, married filing jointly, you're in the 15% category. For long-term capital gains. So you might be like, hey, I'm okay with that. Uh, I'll pay it now and uh and, and get out of that high high price fund. Speaking of high prices, 
There's nothing worse than the high price of not knowing how to protect yourself, create a legacy, and use taxes to offset a lot of your income. Feel free to join us at our tax and asset protection workshop. It's absolutely free. We have November 12th and October 29th. Oh, we have one coming right up. What is today? Oh, it's it's, it's Saturday. Yeah. Well, Clint and I are teaching it this Saturday. You can come join us. Sometimes I forget. All right. After using accelerated depreciation on a new Airbnb this year, can I avoid future recapture through a 1031 exchange? Can I exclude some nights? Let's let's answer that one and then we'll answer the rest of it. Can I 1031 exchange an Airbnb property? Uh, Yes. Wow. If it's used in a trader business, yep. But I took accelerated depreciation. I wrote off like 30% of that property. Can I really do a 1031 exchange? You can. I don't like the word avoid. You can defer future recapture unless uh that that you you eventually leave that uh to your to your beneficiaries from your if you pass or they, donate it or donate thank you uh that would that would get around it that would avoid it <laughs> yes right. yeah yes so yes you can even if you write off a huge chunk of it yep. can i exclude some nights when i stayed overnight in the airbnb property for the purpose of improvement say installation of the gutter guards by a company and then, hey, I had to be there for furniture being delivered. I had to unpack, move, and put it in the right places. You, yes. If, as long as you're the, that day you're there so substantially, you spend the whole day doing the repairs and maintenance and things like that, that will not count as a personal day. Yeah. So first off, if it's 14 days or less, we don't care because they don't count any of those days. If you're over 14 days of personal use, then we really have to start tracking it or if this would put you over. And if you are rehabbing, repairing, if you're there not for personal use, like this isn't because you're staying there to get the benefit of the property, but you're there because you're working on the property, then they'll exclude it from personal use. So the IRS actually tells us that you can do that. So two pieces of good news for you. So whoever the Airbnb king is or queen, uh, you get a you get a star. You're going to be very, very happy. Hopefully they're listening. Yes. All right. Can I take a primary home loan on a property that has been bought with a 1031 with 1031 exchange funds and live in the property myself. In other words, can I convert a property that I purchased in a 1031 exchange? Can I move into it and borrow against it? Yes. <laughs> but of course there's rules behind it. I, I don't know that there's a fast and steady rule for how long you have you have to use it after the 1031 in a trader business. So you're gonna have to run it as, uh, as a business. You can't just get it and then move right into it. The rule of thumb out there is maybe two years of running it as a as a uh, trader business is often what you'll see, and then you can move into it uh, once you've picked it up and you are living it. Well, then yes, you could do whatever loan you want on it. Yeah, so I would say this: number one, primary home. Like if you buy a replacement property, there's a period of time. I don't know if it's a year, two years, where you have to li- where, where it has to be an investment property. In other words, you can't just move into it. And then the code actually contemplates this happening. They actually, you have a 121 exclusion, which is a capital gain exclusion. And uh, normally you have to live in it two of five years. You can't do it every two years. When it's a 1031 exchange property, I think you have a five-year waiting period, but you could. And then borrowing against a 1031 exchange, I don't know. I'm sorry if you already said this. I was reading all the chats. (laughs) Did you get into borrowing against the 1031? I did. Well, after they've moved into it, made their primary residency, I was just saying that you could, but we have the other issue that if you, you want to hit that. Well, you have a general rule that you can you can actually borrow even after you 1031 exchange, so long as it's not part of the exchange. Yes. In other words, hey, if I 1031 into a property 
and it's not relevant to the closing. In other words, I have enough monies to close, then you could borrow it. You can use it to in lever and take money out of a 1031 exchange. There's actually a couple of cases on it. But there, like I said, on the two years that you have to live there, that's just kind of what a lot of people see out there. I think the most important thing is that you show that it was used in a trader business, and that may not be take two years. Mm-hmm. It's just a little up and error on that. I think they use it as a safe harbor, but it doesn't mean you necessarily have to wait two years. It, we have somebody out there that uh, looks like their mortgage broker or something and says for a 1031 to a primary home, you really need to get, uh, and if you're doing a loan against it, you need to make sure you have your documentation in place. Mm-hmm. So my guess is that somebody's moving into the property and then taking a loan out, I think is what you were advocating. Correct. But if somebody is like, hey, I want to move into the 1031 exchange, but I can't unless I, uh-huh. you know, I need, I need, I need money out of it, then uh, it probably, do, you know, I don't. Well, you already own it. Maybe to maybe to extinguish a, a, a loan on another piece of property or something, then uh, yeah, you'd have to make sure you're you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's with the mortgage company for sure. But anyway, so the good news is, yes, you can. the The code actually contemplates, uh, and yeah, you can do both. You can you can take a primary home loan on a property and move into it. It's just making sure. If it's closing as a 1031, then it's going in the investment category loan. Exactly, Rick. So you're never going to be able to just move directly into the the house. So if I 1031 exchange, so I sell some commercial property, I buy a property, I am not moving into that property after the close. I am waiting a period of time, probably a year, maybe at least six months, but you got to show that it was an investment property when you bought it. So, uh, and then you can convert it over to a primary home. All right. How does the new corporate transparency law affect our LLC structures? Are you confident that Anderson can figure out a workaround to maintain anonymity? What are the good and bad takeaways from the new law? Well, I, I, it, every LLC for our clients typically is going to be underneath this because it hits all small businesses. The exemptions, and there's like 23, are really dealing with your publicly trading companies, so the, the companies that everybody knows all about anyway. So uh, it's more geared towards smaller businesses. Uh, is there a way to maintain anonymity? Well, we never had anonymity to begin with with the government, okay? And so all the, the, the purpose behind this is that there's going to be uh, the FinCEN agency that will and, and law enforcement that are supposed to be the only ones who have information to this. So the Corporate Transparency Act was passed. They've been taking, they're doing regs on them, and they just came out with final regs a few weeks ago. I think my partner, Clint, put something on his YouTube channel going over it. In a really fancy way is you're going to, was it FinRen? What is it? Fin? FinCEN. FinCEN. Financial reporting. Financial criminal. uh, Yeah. So it's a government agency that cannot share your information. So you're reporting the beneficial owners on all entities where there's a beneficial interest, and it could be corporations, LLCs, trusts, et cetera. They want to know who's behind them, and they're trying to prevent money laundering or bad people and also create a criminal act to go after those folks if they don't disclose. So if they find out that an oligarch from some country we're really mad at is investing in the United States, they have they have additional crimes that they can tack on and and go after those assets and go after that that business. But it's not a public disclosure. In other words, the government's not sharing that information. Look who's behind this LLC. No. And it's no different than what the Bank Act, the Bank Secrecy Act requires now. After 9-11, these laws were put into place where the bank has to know who the owners are. 
The United States is pretty lax compared to Europe. I mean, it's nasty in Europe, but they just want to know, hey, who the customer is and who's the beneficiary. And they're going to want to, to know who that individual is. To your politicians, look to your left and right. They're the criminals. John? <laughs> yes, but they have to disclose <laughs> under this too. But I, 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 I do know what you're saying. So uh, this will have zero impact on the anonymity that Anderson advocates, which is from the public record. In other words, I don't want to create liability by having somebody be able to go to a public record and look up my ownership or my involvement with an entity. That just That's no different than if I get into a car accident and I run up and say, by the way, I'm really, really wealthy and start telling the other person how much money you have, expect to get sued. Like They're just going to be like, oh, that's great to know. And then they go to a lawyer and they said, well, what do we know about that individual? Well, I don't know. They said they're really rich. But what I have a really good friend that owns an agency and they said, they always tell doctors, please do not tell the other party that you're a doctor. You're just you're where the, the claim just went up considerably once the other party knows that. So they try to, we want to not create liability for ourselves. Hey, look, I have 30 properties in the city. You want people to not know that information. And this does not impact that. The Corporate Transparency Act will not affect your ability to maintain anonymity. But there's no workaround on the Corporate Transparency Act. It's a law. And you know we're going to follow the law just like everybody else is going to have to follow the law. And anybody that's a registered agent or a formation company is going to have to disclose who's doing it. We have to disclose who we are and the beneficiaries. So you know, are there people that are going to, uh, I mean, criminals tend to ignore the law anyway. So are there going to be criminals to have other people open up bank accounts on their behalf and give them the money? Yes. The the real crooks are always going to do that, or they're using cash, or they're using crypto now. They're not using regular transactions for the most part. There might be the, you know, there, there might be some that, that still do, but they're not, it's generally not going to be the United States if they are. So, it, you know, it just gives the government more tools to prevent certain types of behaviors from occurring, and it gives them a remedy in the event somebody does that. So um, I don't know what else to say about that. Well, I like that's that's it. it. It doesn't really impact our clients for the most part. No. Our clients are pretty... As far as we know, they're, they're, they're clean. <laughs> yeah, they're on the up and up. Our family has Christian healthcare medical bill sharing. I'm always told this is not insurance. How does the IRS view this? Can it be deducted for Schedule A? Can it be used as an insurance deduction? So... We get this question quite a bit, especially during tax uh, deadlines. It isn't, you're, you're correct, it is not insurance in the eyes of the IRS. It is just a group of people coming together and helping pay one another's uh, medical claims. And so that's why it is not insurance. And, and insurance is defined as something that can be deducted. This cannot be deducted. Uh, it cannot be used on Schedule A. It cannot be used as uh, medical reimbursement Um However, though, in researching this, just to see what was the latest on it, there is a proposal out there for regulation where the IRS is trying to change that. They're trying to get this, well, this would be deductible. They recognize the similarities. Uh, it just hasn't, that proposal hasn't really just passed, if you will, to be in, uh, something yeah. that we can rely on yet. When we had the Obama share, the <laughs> Obamacare, excuse yes. me, uh, and you had the requirement to, to carry insurance, the yeah. compulsion, courts had come through and said, we recognize the medical sharing arrangements is meeting that standard. Correct. So it has had that level of acceptance uh, within the the, you know, the the tax and, and legal uh, realm, but it's not quite where we can deduct it yet. But again, there's a proposal out there 
We just have to wait to see what happens. Yeah, HSAs still don't work, yeah, right? correct, correct. and uh, you can't treat it as insurance. And that's part of the the the, the problem is that as actually the HSA law. From what I read on it, I, I read a really in depth uh, research paper on this, and the laws are a little bit different for HSA, and, and it's the problem of trying to make it fit under what's called section 1213. And uh, I think it was uh, twelve, like twelve twenty-three or something like that, for the HSA. Uh, it's the IRS is trying to balance the two, and they're basically really, really just to say, look, we understand there's a difference in the language how we use it, but we're saying go ahead and allow it as a deduction. And that's what they're proposing. It just takes time to get there yet. Mm-hmm. We will see. But yeah. yeah, so to answer your question, the IRS does not view it as insurance. It, it views it as though like you helped your brother Ned pay some of his, you know bills it's a gift right if it's not deductible no it's not deductible on schedule a and no it cannot be used as an insurance deduction correct as of right now so maybe they change it lobby your congress people and say hey this is unfair that if i buy from united healthcare i'm good but if i buy from metashare i'm not yeah my husband and i acquired a short-term rental this year and hoping to close on a multifamily property for a long-term residential by the end of the year. I'm on track with rep status for 2022. We have come across several potential listings, however, requiring a gut down and major rehab. The likelihood of having a reno done and rented is slim by the end of this year. My question is if having the listing up ready for rental is considered in service. In of itself, and just putting the listing up there, no, it has to be available for service. It is the the status you're trying to get, and that means that if if you did put it up there, then I could move in there right now. Um, and you run the whole risk of needing asset protection if you do something like that, because if you've ever been on construction of a house, you have a renter in there, a tenant. You know, there's a lot of things that could injure that individual. So you're definitely going to want to have your your LLCs up in place and insurance, et cetera. Uh, but if if they can't move in there right now, then no, it's not available for rent. And so, no, we would not get that deduction by 1231. Unless it is available. Correct. So like if your question is, hey, I'll have it available by the last week of the year. Does that allow me to take the deduction this year? Yes. The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If uh, it's not available for rent, you're not done with the reno by the end of the year, it'll be in 2023. Here's the problem I see. It says I acquired a short-term rental and a long-term rental, and I'm tracked for rep status. Short-term rentals do not count for the material participation of your rental activities together. So that time would only count towards qualifying under the 750 hours, not under material participation, because a short-term rental, if it is seven days or less average rental, and listen to me carefully, it is not rental activity. It's a regular trader business activity. So whenever I hear short-term rental, I say pizza shop. So I acquired a pizza shop this year, and I'm hoping to close on a multifamily property for long-term rentals by the end of the year, and I'm, I'm on track for rep status. Did you include the pizza shop in your reps calculation? Because unless you're managing the short-term rental, that's not going to fly. And it's a completely different material participation test. So it sounds weird. Like, why is Toby talking about pizza? It's because it's a completely separate activity. The way you bring that underneath the the same umbrella as your long-term rentals is you set up a corporation to be the host of that short-term rental and you rent the property to the corporation on an annual basis. Now for you, 
that is a, an investment property for purposes of qualifying for a real estate trade. Like if you want to be a real estate professional for the 750 hour, you can add that time together because you own more than 10% of the, of the corporation. So you can take that time, but magically it can be considered a long-term rental for purposes of aggregating and meeting the material participation test. So uh, I know you asked a few questions on this. This is one of these situations where I would strongly urge you to reach out to us. And if you're platinum, make sure you're meeting with somebody. And if you're not, make sure that uh, that maybe you should become so you can talk to somebody directly, a guy like Elliot or somebody like Elliot, because you are dealing with two or three issues that are very fact specific that we don't want you to to screw yourself up. Because when I see rep status, and I see short-term and long-term, I immediately think, oh, crud, seven days or less short-term rental pizza shop. It's not a short-term rental anymore. How do we make sure that we don't miss the material participation on all of your properties? By Because you're not going to get to have any material participation on the long-term rental unless you're doing the, the build-out yourself or you're there supervising. And it's going to be really tough for you to materially participate on that. You're going to meet your material participation test more than likely on working in the short-term rental and you can't count that when it's a short-term rental. So it's going to be really difficult for you to meet rep status. You may not need it if you're going to depreciate the short-term. You may not need it if you're okay taking the long-term rental into next year and you're going to meet the material participation test on the multifamily next year. But it is absolutely critical that you understand the diff- the, the, the different type of timekeeping on those. Um, so I just want to make sure that, that I mentioned that because, uh, um, easy to mix that up. It, yeah. And it's, it, and unfortunately the rules are kind of, not everybody understands them. So you want to make sure, Hey, I do this. I want to make sure that I am tracking those things accurately. And I set myself up for success on that. Speaking of setting yourself up for success, make sure that you join our YouTube channel. So again, it's free and you can set yourself up to get notified by turning on notifications to one new videos come out. So if you like this type of information, we do put our tax Tuesday recordings up there too. So if you saw a few people were saying, Hey, can I get a recording of this? Yes, you can absolutely go there and do that. Now, speaking to the folks that have been getting their questions answered, there have been 165 written answers thus far and another 16 that are waiting. So thank you for patiently waiting, but Patty, Ander, Dana, Matthew, Lanzi, I think Pio was on. Dutch was on, Ian was on, Christos was on, I think I already said Lanzi, uh, who else? Trisha was on, I think we hit everybody else, but there's a lot of folks on answering your questions. They will get to your uh, your questions for Kevin wrote in a much longer reply. Uh, Patty, maybe grab that one and shoot it over to me uh, so I can make sure that we get somebody answered. So that uh, we give you some guidance, because it looks like there's more facts coming our way on that one. Hey, if you have questions during the time in between Tax Tuesdays, go to Tax Tuesday, or you can email in at at Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. Somebody says, I have issues with the last question. Both Okay, somebody will will make sure that we get with you, Roseanne. I think that Patty's communicating with you. But if you have questions on taxes, general questions, just Go ahead, shoot them on in at TaxTuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Visit our website if you want to sign up for our tax and asset protection or look at our other trainings. We do provide a 
lot of free trainings. And the reason we do that is because smarter clients are better clients, more successful people become our clients. It doesn't do us any good if you don't make money because it's hard to do tax planning for people that don't make money. And legacy planning goes hand in hand with good investing and good business planning. So we actually have an interest in making sure that you are successful. It makes us more successful. So plus we just like doing good out there. So we will absolutely provide you with tons of free training if you allow it. And again, our YouTube channels, my partner Clint has a very uh, a very good channel as well. You could pop in there if you want to. Uh, you could also come in into our website just at Anderson Advisors. And then of course you could reach out to us at any time at Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. Elliot, do you have anything to add? Uh, no. Thanks for stepping <laughs> Thank in. Thanks for uh, allowing me. You did a great job. <laughs> Sometimes I step on you. I apologize. No, not at all. No. It's my nature, <laughs> right? So uh, anyway, uh, thanks for coming in and, yep. and, and sitting in for Jeff. And I hope Jeff gets feels feeling better. We will see you guys in two weeks. If you have a question that's waiting to get answered, hang tight. We will answer it. And, uh, and we will make sure that... Uh, that we get you some responses. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.